We're back from the grave. From the grave to the grave? Yes. We're here to tell you that season two of Filotimo Life starts in two weeks. And two weeks after that. And another two weeks after that. Because we're going bi-weekly. And that's not all. Damn Wait, what? To get you all warmed up, here's a very special surprise bonus episode and sneak peek of season two. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a very special, very bonus guest. That's right. So, Ammo, I know you've heard of the Death at Slayers podcast and their hilarious host, the viral TikTok sensation, Tawny Plattis. Have I ever? Her posts are incredible. And I absolutely love her trashy widowed aunt character. Well, as you know, that's our very special guest for this intro episode. And before we get into that... We really want to give a huge thanks to everyone that listened to season one or just got in touch with us on social uh, as a new platform, as a new podcast. The numbers have just been incredible and the buzz has just blown us away. We were overwhelmed with the amount of love you sent our way after season one. We both received so many messages of support. And then when we passed a thousand downloads within the first three weeks, it just blew our minds. So thank you so much for listening. And we've also taken on board a lot of your feedback about what you wanted to see more of and hear more of. Um, This is why we're going to make a couple of changes this season, including the episodes coming out on a bi-weekly basis, because that'll bring a little bit more Filatimo into your life. Yep. So after this intro episode, we're going to mix it up between insightful chats with experts within the death care space, fun segments, and our regular stuff. Some guests will include Linda Stewart, who is a life cycle celebrant, and Olga Nikolajev, who's a death doula that incorporates holistic approaches, some including cannabis, into her work. Fun. But like Maria said, don't worry, because these will be on top of our old school style episodes with just the two of us, which we know you love. So this season, we're going to introduce some new ideas, like um, an analysis of death in Disney movies. And this is your death, where we talk about some famous and unusual deaths. We'll also be bringing back a fan favorite, historical perspectives of death. We'll also have more collaborations with fellow content creators, podcasters, and creatives like the one we had with Tawny today. Stay tuned, because we are just getting started. As for Tawny, she started the podcast shortly after the traumatic and sudden death of her husband, George. Her experience as a comedian helped her to process his death and keep moving forward. It's incredible how she used that podcast to do that, don't you think? Yeah, she's a real game changer when it comes to death literacy. I'm very grateful for the introduction to her. It was done by my dear friend, Tyler, who's behind the Minds of Madness podcast. He graciously made the intro, and that's how we were able to get Tawny on as a guest for this bonus pre-season two episode. Yeah, it was also super amazing of her to speak to us, not once, but twice, We had one conversation for this podcast and then another totally different one for her podcast, which you might already heard. Um, If not, we'll link it below in the show notes. We won't keep you waiting any longer. Let's get to the episode. I first want to say congratulations with your recent live comedy show. Can you tell us how that went? Thank you. It went really well. I was actually surprised. It's uh, a brand new app. I'm, I'm streaming comedy and what I do is an interactive comedy show since... 2020 kind of, you know, messed up my plans for everything. I was originally getting on the festival, local festival circuit in San Diego and Southern California, and that came to a screeching halt in March of last year, March. 
And I started doing my comedy online, doing sketches, and I got picked up by an agency recently. So now I am doing comedy shows for an app called Pacocha. I do that uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays at six o'clock Pacific time. So we would love to see you there. And it's an interactive comedy show. So what I do is I have this game that I play called the Death Deck. And it was a game created by a fellow widow. So it's funny as hell. And we use that when we play in the little live stream, people chime in and that usually takes me in a direction of performing a bit and then we circle back to the cards so it's it's a lot of fun and the first show went really well for a new app i was really surprised at how many people showed up and were really engaged and i i love it it was it was really cool so good i love the plug that you added there um <laughs> when it comes to doing stand-up especially during a pandemic because everything completely got disrupted this time last year what are any challenges that you first initially faced when transitioning to virtual, whether it was like technical or changes in the physical setup? Yeah, it was tough. It was weird because I'm not used to like performing like that. You know, you so feed off the audience and their energy and you can't see anybody. You're just in the blank room talking in this void. And that's a little nerve wracking, but on the other hand, that was also how I kind of practiced was online too. I have been with a little practice group since I was 19, studying stand-up comedy and working on it. But we were all in a room together. You could see people's reactions. You could gauge that. And that's not something that you get with streaming. You're like, I hope this lands and nobody just leaves the room or destroys me in the comments. And I also started my podcast around that time too. I was still kind of trying to figure out how I wanted to go with that and how that ended up was actually taking my stand-up routines, kind of turning them into letters. And then my creative collaborator and I read each other funny letters about what we're going through as traumatized people mm. on the podcast. <laughs> so it was challenging, but in a, in a similar vein, I feel like I was also a little bit more prepared than some other people who were in that same boat, unfortunately, that were used to live shows and were like, oh my gosh, I have to do everything online now. How, how do I do all this? I already had all the tech. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you in a way were more prepared than others. I think so. Yeah, I was already used to being alone all the time because my husband was dead too. So that was not too much of a stretch. <laughs> you were used to talking into the void. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk, talking to people that I'm simply imagining are there. <laughs> so how much, if a joke falls flat, how much do you blame lag or the joke? I am one of those people that immediately blames myself like I have that like total anxiety that you hear with like all comedians that they hate themselves they're anxious they're depressed like I am that comedian <laughs> like it's me I suck I should never do comedy again and then you know I go cry for 15 minutes with my mm -hmm. dog and chocolate in the bathroom and then I pull myself together and go back and do it again because I'm a masochist of course are you, are you live streaming the crying too with the dog or that's a good idea that would probably get me more tips right they're like oh she's yeah. pathetic yeah. <laughs> yeah, Maria's thinking of doing that for me when I cry now, that's why. <laughs> Live stream ammo tears. <laughs> that's it, yeah. So just blame the lag. That's what you should do. I'll start doing that. <laughs> um, speaking of you know, the podcast that you mentioned, so initially you started it with uh, your late husband. 
and that was called the Dirty Bits podcast, am I correct? Yes, that's okay. correct. And then after he, his death, you started Death is Hilarious. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of about how, similar to, to a lot of people and myself, you use dark humor to sort of overcome grief. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey going from the Dirty Bits podcast to where you are now? Absolutely. We had this show that was very along the same lines as Drunk History, where we casually retold these particularly scandalous, salacious stories from history that your teacher would not have been able to tell you in school. So we did that very casually on the show. And while we were doing this, he was also sick. My husband was born with something called hypoplastic right heart syndrome. So he had one ventricle in his heart instead of two. He had three chambers in his heart instead of four, and his heart was a mirror image on his chest. He told me on our first, we'll call it a date, on our first date, he told me that he could die at any moment, that that's how most people died with what he had, and it was always possibility. I wanted to be with him for as much time as I could get. We dealt with this just looming mortality with dark humor. He was Mm. always making jokes about it. He was always cracking jokes about it. And everybody else was uncomfortable and told him not to do that. But that's how he was coping. And what I always noticed was he did so much better when he was just talking about it like that and bringing that levity to something that he could not control. I'm the same way. I've always been that way. I love using dark humor. So we were already doing that surrounding like what was going on at the time. When I was 28 and he was 29, he got really sick. He had comorbidities that went along with his condition. One of those is a lack of functioning cilia. Cilia are those little fibers that move mucus through your body and prevent Mm -hmm. the mucus from pooling. So his didn't work very well, which meant he got chronic pneumonia and it was severe He was hospitalized, had to have lung surgery where they had to clear it out. And he was on oxygen for 24 hours a day at several points throughout that year. He was really slowing down. It happens. It's a very individualized um, illness, you know, hypoplastic right heart syndrome. It kind of affects everybody differently. We were thinking like, okay, he's, he's starting to slow down. We might only have a few years left together, but again, the thing that really kills him most is sudden unexplained death syndrome. Mm. So I was in my office working. I came out and he was on the kitchen floor. The oxygen mask was askew. Um, I freaked out. I called the EMTs. I tried to resuscitate him. It, it is very messy. I have PTSD from this day. Like if, you, if, mm. if you've ever been uh, so unfortunate enough to have to resuscitate somebody or try, um, it's very messy. There's a lot of bodily fluids going on and you get covered in them. And um, I tried to resuscitate him. I did a pretty good job because I cracked some ribs as you're supposed to do. So I was told that, it, you know, I did good. Um, by the time the EMTs got there, though, he he was gone. I don't know if I, I, I think he was already gone by the time I got to him. I'm not 100% sure they really can't be either. But I, I think that's what happened. And um, so they, they tried to resuscitate him. They came out, they told me he was gone. And I just fell to the floor screaming. If you've ever seen that show, uh, Jane the Virgin, that is spot on to like what happens, very accurate portrayal. Um, 
And my husband was the only person that I had. I, I don't have family. I, I don't have anybody else really. Like the people at the time that were in my life were like, I was friendly with my friends, but my husband was the first person in my life to have ever loved me unconditionally, completely. Like that was my family. He was my everything, my soulmate, my whole life. Um, so as far as I knew, I was alone in the world. I was totally alone in the world. My husband was everything to me. I didn't want to be alive anymore. So my plan was to unalive myself. Um, I wanted to get my dog over to his parents' house because they loved her. She loves them. And then I wanted to go be with my husband's body, be with him and like take him in as long as I could and then end things. Mm -hmm. So that's my plan. And they bring a trauma specialist onto the scene and she fucked up my plan because she came over and she's being all nice to me. She's like, okay, let's get some water. Let's go try to take a walk outside. And I look up and I see that they're bringing the stretcher in with this black bag. And I'm like, oh shit, she's trying to get me to stand up because they're going to take his body and that's going to screw up my plan here. I don't mm. want them to do that. But I can't say like, hey, I need to keep the body because I would like to have that while I kill myself. You know, then they're it's really going to mess up your plan because then they take you away. So I'm, I'm a comedian. I barely have a filter as it is. I really had no filter at this time. I look up at this woman and I go, yeah, I'm not ready for you to take his body, but I guess you kind of have to. Otherwise, you're liable to end up with like a Norman Bates situation from Psycho. And that's not good. <laughs> Is that really what you said in the moment? I said that in the moment. Yeah. It's just the first, I just, I thought it and it came out of my mouth Wow! and she and the EMTs start cracking up because EMTs are sickos. Like they see <laughs> horrible things all day, every day. They, they use dark humor to cope. And I'm like, I hear this laughter and I start feeling that really familiar feeling that you get as an entertainer, as a performer, which is like validation, like something that like resembles, you know, love. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I just can't stop at that point. I'm like, well, I guess I could like kind of sling them over my shoulder and just weekend at Bernie's it and see how long it takes for people to notice. We could try that, guys. And they start laughing again. And I, I start feeling the good feels again. I'm like, okay. So I'm alone in this world. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me, but I can still make people laugh. And that's pretty damn close to feeling loved. So it was immediate for me. It was really a survival mechanism. Something inside of me was like, like, no, we need to keep this bitch alive. Start making jokes. And that's, that's, I just didn't stop. I couldn't stop. And I offended a lot of people. <laughs> some people got it. Some people didn't get it. <laughs> it's facing that dopamine rush, right? Yeah, yeah. I've never done heroin, but I'd imagine it feels like this. <laughs> so EMTs are cool. Got it. EMTs are great. If you're if you're that kind of sick, those are your people. <laughs> Found a new audience. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Very niche. Very niche. <laughs> Let's go do shows in the ER now. <laughs> yeah. And then from there, obviously the podcast changed from dirty bits to Death is hilarious. Was that immediate or how did that come together? One of my, my colleagues, um, Hannah from the Boozy Moozies, Boozy Moozies, <laughs> from the Boozy Movies podcast, and also she does sketches on TikTok with her collaborator, she came up with the name and I was like, that's perfect. So the name was pretty instantaneous, but the format was not. I, I had to go back to work immediately, pretty much after my husband died. Um, 
I'm not an actor like Emma Stone where I just like have money or assets that I can rely on and just be like, I'm going to take this year and really heal and take this time. Like I have bills to pay and I, I have to hustle every day and get gigs, you know, freelance life. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was like, I have to produce this show. The show is a quarter to a third of my income. I have a contract. There are expectations. I need to be putting something out. So I didn't want to keep doing the dirty bits. Like that was mine and my husband's show. Like the thought of doing it was painful. Like that was the thing I didn't want to do was that show. Like that format, anything like that. I just could not even conceive of it. But I I couldn't stop talking about my husband. I wanted to talk about my husband. I wanted to get those good feelings. I wanted to get the laughs. I, I wanted that. So there were a couple of different like formats it went through and it was very messy because I just had to be putting out content at that time. So it took some months, but I finally got into the format that it is today, which is essentially my creative collaborator and I take stand-up routines and perform them for each other on the show. And then I also interview other creatives who use dark comedy to cope with their grief, trauma, loss, general state of fuckery. I can cuss on this show. General state of fuck. Oh yeah. Go. Okay. I thought so. (laughs) Go ham. Yeah. No, like funny story. We were telling each other when we first were working on the first season of this podcast, like we can't curse. We have to keep it like very like minimal. And we thought we did release the, the, the season and people were apparently messaging ammo. I think it was to you and myself. They were like, Oh wow. So great. You guys are just so vulgar. It's amazing. And me and Ammo were like, wait, I thought we didn't curse. No, we did. We did. Can't help it. You must have yeah. a lot of Americans listening to you then getting offended by the cursing. <laughs> That's good. You're doing well in the States. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> Oh, because I live here. I know these lunatics. (laughs) One thing me and Maria were talking about Uh, is obviously you use humor to, you use humor to change your relationship with grief. But then how did grief change your relationship with humor in this whole past few years, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's made me more dark. I was already a dark person, but I think like it's made me darker, but also more aware of other people too. It makes you more empathetic with your humor. I think before there was a lot of like, I don't care what you think, but now I've learned so much as well. Like having that, that be a part of it. Like one, like who, who was it? I think it was Rich Kiamko was talking about it, like being in the group and being able to make fun of the group you're in, but not making fun of other people. And Mm -hmm. you kind of see that with like Gilbert Godfrey when he made the joke about the tsunami and he just like lost all of his contracts. Everybody was like, you can't make jokes about that. And I think I have more of like an understanding of that, like not an understanding, but a better understanding of those lines and how people conceptualize dark humor, why people are offended by dark humor, why I think they shouldn't be offended by dark humor. But I I think it gives you more empathy and more understanding just as a person. And I think that that has shown up more in, in both of those cases, in my grief and in my humor. Good answer. Thank you. I'd like to be Miss America. <laughs> <laughs> so good. You, you mentioned that your husband used dark humor when coping with um, his, his health and like everything that he was going through. Um, 
being part of a Greek family myself him and him being Greek as well, I am very familiar in the sense of Greeks don't talk about this type of stuff. They're very like hush hush about it. Um, look on the positive side of life. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Can you share your own personal upbringing in relation to discussing death, dying and grief? And if that changed when you met George and after his death? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, George, George was very much the black sheep of his family. He was, he was the odd man out there. Um, and with me, it was bizarre because I, I was raised in a fundy evangelical home. So death was looked at as almost celebratory in a weird way where it was like, oh, we're going to be in heaven and we don't have to do all this crazy stuff on earth and be in pain anymore. We're, you know, death is great. Like, like death was looked at in, in that way. Um, which is kind of bizarre because like on one hand, I, I don't think that there was a lot of fear there. And I, I definitely didn't have a fear of death, but I didn't value life very much either because of that perspective that I was raised with. And um, as far as like how they dealt with it, like they, they definitely spoke about it. It wasn't like you couldn't talk about things. There was like a certain way you were supposed to talk about them for sure. But um, it was pretty, it was pretty matter of fact. It was pretty blunt, but um, at the same time, evangelical fundies, you're not really brushing up on a lot of death because everybody's between the ages of 16 and 21 when they're having kids. So nobody's dead. Like my, my great, great grandpa died when I was six. Like I I'd only been to like one or two funerals before. And I was very, very young. I didn't, this was my first, like for realsies funeral that I went to was my husband. So like, you know, if you were going to get introduced to grief, like they threw me into the deep end of the pool and they're like, swim motherfucker. Like yeah, no that was tough. I did not. Yeah. I didn't get to ease into like, you know, how, how do you deal with grief and loss? I'd never really experienced it before. Not like this, like the, the loss that you get when you you know, uh, drift apart as you graduate high school from your friends and, you know, you don't have the same friends anymore and that's sad or you move and that's sad. And, you know, there's loss there, but that was it. Like I I had never experienced like really any death, like significantly like that. Yeah. When you, when you made the comment about um, how you were brought up with the idea of, yeah, once you die, everything is great. All I thought of was basically there's no capitalism in heaven is what you're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a, that's a silver yeah. lining. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I forgot. When it comes to your comment about you didn't value life because death was just looked at as it's no big deal type of thing. One of the reasons that I actually called this podcast Feel Up to My Life is because I want people to understand that until we truly value life and how we live our lives here currently, like we value personal time, we value um, friendships, relationships, we actually dedicate time and resources to these things. Um, we're never going to be able to truly value and appreciate like the transition to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people really undervalue. I agree. I, I think that's a really profound way to put it. Actually. I agree. I'm kind of the opposite. I feel having a more candid relationship with death allows you to live a better life. You know, so for me, if it were up to me, I would have called it Filatimo dead, but it's not up to me. I'm not the boss. <laughs> Another reason why I wanted to do the the life word is because I know a lot of people, whenever I've spoken about talking about death, they're like, whoa, no, thank you. That's like heavy. And I'm not about that life. So as soon as they hear life, they're like, oh, what's it about? 
so interesting. And that starts the dialogue. And then I'm like, it's about death. And then they're like, oh, I can't backtrack. I'm too deep into this conversation. I have to continue. So like, it's a fear. I, you know, I think, I think people, people are very scared of it. And that, that's the reaction that you have when you come up with subjects like this, is there's some kind of fear around it. So you have the flight response or the fight response. And that's why you see people get angry too. If, if you're not dealing with it in the way that they would have you deal with it. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So a lot of the offense could possibly come from that rather than them just being sort of stuffy about it. I, well, I think that's kind of where the stuffiness comes from too, is it's, it's yeah. fear. You know, I think people are, are very scared about being forgotten too. And that's, that's where that comes in from with death. They have this fear that you will, the laughter is disrespectful in a way it's flippant in a way. And it's, it's disrespectful because you are forgetting Mm, but that's not necessarily the case. No, I, I being raised in San Diego too. I had a very different perspective with it. Like I was raised um, Dia de los Muertos every year. And that was something that I really missed out on because my husband died November, 2019, November 8th, which was like a week after Dia de los Muertos. And then 2020 happened. You can't go out and celebrate. I used to go to old town pretty much every year growing up. And you, you have this, memorial that is very celebratory and it's fun like there's there's sad parts of death but there is so much that goes into Dia de los Muertos that is joyous and it's funny like people are like you have this kind of culture surrounding it where you like have these like riffs on the dead like you tell jokes and funny stories and go yeah man that asshole you know and you have (laughs) that levity that's brought to it and there's music and there's dancing and it's really beautiful and and that's something that was always really special to me my my husband and I love that movie Coco too when that came out we were so excited we were like oh my god like there's a Dino Sports movie It, it felt it felt like like that was something that was so needed. And I was so grateful for that movie. And then when my husband did die and I, I leaned into that, that part of, you know, my, my culture, my, my heritage, all of that, I, I, I felt there were so many other people surrounding it that did not understand that. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, and I'm like, no, this is a valid way <laughs> to, to, to grieve is to have a celebratory aspect in there. Yeah, there's, so after you. Um, I was just going to say there's this book that I'm making my way through right now, and it talks about reactions to grief. And it mentions that a very common one that people feel is guilt for how they're processing it, because it's as if they feel guilt because it's not the way people expect people to deal with grief. Mm-hmm. So on top of everything else that the person may be experiencing, they have thoughts of, I'm not handling this the way I should. Mm-hmm. I'm a bad person and I need to figure it out when the reality of it is no, you're dealing with it. However you're dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. We, we have a lot of that in, in our culture. I, you know, I can't speak for, for Canada or, or anywhere else, but you know, definitely in the United States, there is a very judgmental and kind of constructed idea of how you're supposed to be grieving and people feel very, very entitled to judge people on how they're grieving and doing it a very specific certain way. And I think a lot of that goes in with the the puritanical history of the country too. 
you know, especially when you have like women who are widows, they, they are thought of as their husband's property. I can't tell you how many times like people talk about like what we know, the, the association between what my, my husband would be thinking of or how that, how my husband would think of this. And he's dead. He's not here. Like he's, he want, he would want me to be doing whatever I needed to do to feel better. You were actually on um, a podcast called Finders Grievers, who's actually a friend of a friend of mine. So it's a very small world. And I heard the snippet that you mentioned where you said that in America, you have to be strong. Like you have to avoid talking about these topics. And it goes back to, I think, your comment earlier in our discussion where you said you went to work. When was it? The Monday after George died. Like there's no space to actually feel what you're feeling and like go through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they don't allow that. We, we have a big culture of work until you can die <laughs> here. You know, they, they have, they take a lot of pride in that, you know, of that productivity. We have so much pride in our productivity and we are so proud of being so strong and so stoic here. And it doesn't allow you to be vulnerable. It doesn't allow you to be a human and it's capitalism's fault. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is we need to die to get out of capitalism. Yes. Or just, I will bring the lighter fluid and we can burn this mother down. <laughs> like yeah. I'm going to get all the Gen Z kids from TikTok and we'll do it together. That's it. That'll all be dancing and not really doing anything. Joking. Gen Z is great. I love Gen Z. I um, love Gen Z. They're great. They're the oh future. my gosh. Yes. I, I hope so. I, I like them good and angry. I will, I will buy them their materials. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, speaking of, uh, Gen Z and that sort of content, TikTok, dancing, etc. We, personally, me and Maria, we're pretty obsessed with the character that you've created, the the trashy widowed auntie. Thank you. Um, it, it's brilliant. So good. So yeah. good. Thank you. <laughs> and then on top of the sort of, there's this whole dialogue that you've created around the the widow, mm-hmm. which is just hy- hysterical to us. Um, can you talk a little bit about your creative process behind that? Um, how the character came about? And obviously it's, you know, tied in with George's death and your initial mm-hmm. reaction, but also some of the reactions you've received about posting them. Yeah. To add on to that, I just quickly want to make a note of like, I really appreciate that you're essentially debunking what it looks like to be a widow and how people expect people to react to grief and dying. And I know my one friend, Brittany, who is going to listen to this and she listens to your podcast as well. She really appreciates it because she lost her fiance, I want to say three, four years ago. So having this network is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that with me because I get so much shit, you guys, (laughs) from people. (laughs) I really appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, so if you could... I mean, what do they do? They tell you to drop dead? Because then you'd just be like, well, yeah... I'd be like, we can't have two dead platices in the house. That would be good. It's going to be a pattern, you guys. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, the creative process behind the widow. Yeah, it, it really did come from from life and from like getting that judgment from people. There, 
they, they act like, again, you are supposed to have this way that you're supposed to grieve. There is this timeline that has been constructed that you're supposed to follow, and it just doesn't exist. And it's not the reality of, of many of our situations. I was married to a very handsome man. He, again, you know, he's Greek. He looked like Zac Efron and Dave Franco's summer love child. He's gorgeous. Like, I married him for a reason. I wanted to lock that down every night. And... <laughs> I was laying in bed the night my husband died, the day my husband died, that night I'm laying in bed and I'm like, like my body is expecting my marital bliss. And I'm like, mm. am I really going to like masturbate like <laughs> right now? Like when my husband's dead, like, can I do that? Shit, you know? And I'm like, no, but like, I'm, oh God, I'm having these urges. Right. And, and I'm like, I, I need to text my therapist. It's 2 AM, but I need to text my therapist and bless her. She, she called me and she was like, I was totally expecting this. I'm like, you know, she goes, your husband's hot as hell. I'm like, okay. And, um, she was walking me through it all. And she's like, it's super normal. She goes, it's totally normal. That's like, it's not weird at all. And I'm like, so is it wrong if I like hop on a dating app then if I like get this taken care of? And she's like, no, not at all. She goes, I wouldn't bring anybody to the funeral, but she's like, no, it's not like wrong to sleep with somebody when you're ready is you know, there's, there could be some things that pop up as far as like mental stuff and like grief stuff. So she goes, there's things you want to address, but she's like, there's no, there's no timeline with that at all. And I'm like, okay, okay, but you could be wrong. So I'm going to ignore you and I'm going to make an appointment with another therapist. So I go to this other therapist. I'm like, okay, this is what's going on. Can I, you know, what do I do? I'm a monster, right? I'm like, I'm a horrible person. I'm, I'm terrible. And therapist's like, no, 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 no. Like, it's totally normal. It's fine. This makes complete sense. It's okay. Like there's, there's no timeline. You can sleep with whoever you want consensually whenever you're ready. And I go, okay, but you could be wrong. So I'm going to go make an appointment with another therapist. And I did this three more times <laughs> because I'm like, you're just being nice to me. Like, ugh, no. Or like with the guy, I'm like, or you just want to sleep with me. You just see an opportunity. And I couldn't wrap my head around it because of the way that people talk about it. And I had five mental health professionals, five psychologists tell me that it was fine. I was Googling frantically and seeing all of these articles and seeing all these people talking about how it was perfectly okay. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I did. And I wanted to be a part of that conversation because so many people and women particularly get judged, well, get judged for it. There, there are people that are just incensed by it. And they think that if you if you have a dark sense of humor, if you're laughing about it, if you are finding any kind of comfort, if you're if you're filling the literal void because you can't fill the metaphorical one, then that means that you didn't love your husband. I've been told I didn't love him. I've been told that that makes me a suspect to his death, that I somehow had a part in his demise is what was, was told to up, me. Man. People are fucked up. People say some horrible things and I'm like, well, I have five psychologists that work on my brain, you know, but like not everybody has that luxury. So that's one of the reasons I, I talk about it is because, you know, A, it's funny as hell, but B, also there are people out there every day when I release this content, they're like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Oh my God, I thought there was something wrong with me. And they don't know this. They don't have access to somebody telling them, yeah, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. That's what frustrates me about this because you won't know that you need to learn, know this stuff until you experience it yourself. It's like we're set up essentially to fail from like an early age. And until it happens to you at the age of 
20, 25, 30, whenever it happens, it's like, oh, why were we not taught this as children to process these emotions, which just it frustrates me to no end. Likewise, mm. we, we don't have any space for that. We don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. And I, I was talking about this with um, Shohana on Finders Grievers mm-hmm. and on, on my podcast too. She was kind enough to come and chat with me and that episode will be released soon. We talk about how we are taught to pursue comfort and happiness. And those are the only emotions we should be feeling. And if we are feeling anything besides that, there's something wrong with us. We need to fix it. It's not okay. And it really does such a disservice to us as humans and really experiencing the full range of what it means to be human if if we don't allow ourselves to feel uncomfortable. And then, like you said, we're also unprepared because we just don't want to deal with it. We just don't want to talk about it. We're going to bottle it all up until it turns into a tumor and then just carve it out and throw it away when it happens a bunch of years later. We, We don't ever want to talk about things that aren't necessarily comfortable to talk about. And it's just this terrible cycle that just keeps continuing. And I I have a lot of appreciation for people that are doing that hard work, like the really hard work to break those stigmas because there is backlash. And if you are at all not a narcissist, you will internalize that stuff and think like, is there something wrong with me? Should I be, are they right? Am I wrong? I don't know. I'm not sure. It's, it's hard and it's scary. So I, I really appreciate the people that are doing like the actual work to break mm-hmm. those stigmas and make it so it's easier to talk about and we can be prepared and have those conversations. I mean, you're, you're right in that, you know, this space is really new and it's really taboo in the sort of the space that we're in. It's, it's wild how you were molded into thinking you should think a certain way. So you went to five you know, trained professionals, and you, you was, that sent that control it had over you was still that big. But having said that, there's there's a small network of us now, right? There's obviously Death is Hilarious, there's Filatimo, there's the Grief Cast, Find His Grievers. And this is sort of a question for, for you and Maria. Uh, how does it feel to be part of a, like this brand new growing microcosm that nobody would have known about? I, I don't know. I guess like, it's scary because it feels, I, I don't know how to even talk about it because you kind of feel like an asshole. Like anytime I talk about this stuff at all, I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm making jokes on the internet. Like I'm not really doing anything that's significant. There are people that are actually out there that are mental health professionals that are doing things that are really, truly meaningful. And I, I'm making dumbass videos on TikTok and I'm 30 years old and I'm getting paid to do it. It's pathetic. Like, <laughs> I don't know how much I'm really contributing, but I mean, just put, as far as like putting yourself out there goes, you know, it's scary because I, I'm not a person that is like, I'm going to just do what I'm going to do and screw you guys. I have total confidence in this. I do take people into consideration and I get worried and I I wonder at myself and I question myself. I don't have all of this confidence built up to think that I am just always right without fail. Like I'm not an infallible person and I'm aware of that. So there is always that fear where I'm like, am I doing something wrong? And I think that's what's scary about being in this space is it's like, am I, am I doing something harmful or is this okay? And that's where I feel so driven to check in with people like the mental health professionals and 
one of the reasons I interview psychologists and therapists on my show is because it is just as much for me as it is for anybody else. So I'm like, is this okay? (laughs) Should I be doing this? Is this all right? Give me validation. I need validation. (laughs) I don't want to do, I don't want to do the wrong thing. Like I'm one of those white people. I'm like, white people suck. I'm sorry. I need to fix it. Like, like when people tell me that I I'm wrong, my immediate reaction is not to be defensive. It's to apologize and like, just go fix it immediately, which I I think people are surprised at because of the character. You know, I, I, I play a version of myself doing all this stuff and comedy is a version of yourself for a lot of us. There's, there's hyperbole, it's performative. You know, I'm, I'm not really how I am off stage, I guess you'd call it, or off stream, whatever. When, when I, when I'm not in that space, I'm a, I'm very different in that regard. I'm, I'm much more reserved. I can't see that. I know. Well, we're on a show. <laughs> uh, seriously, but when, when it comes to your comment, but when you said like, I'm pathetic, I've been there. Emma has definitely been there. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's right. Things. I am pathetic. <laughs> um, and I feel like there has to be a lot of unlearning done when it comes to this train of thought. And I get it externally validated by others when I when we launched the podcast I got a message from a friend and she said this is a movement she didn't say this is a podcast she didn't say this is just a platform she used the word movement and there was no prompting on my end I wasn't like encouraging it from her or anything like that so don't think otherwise um she was very much so supportive of what was going on and when I heard that from someone else and I'm hearing other comments from other people in terms of how it's impacting them and influencing their way of thinking, it makes me realize this is in a sense, advocacy work, that what we're doing together, we're starting that dialogue. We're getting people involved in the discussion. And to your point, we're not hundred percent. We're not professionals in the sense of we're um, psychiatrists, therapists or anything like that. Though I would say, psychiatrists and therapists, most of them probably aren't doing this type of work where it's starting that conversation. So I think there has to be a balancing act between the entertainment piece and then also the education piece. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to this space in particular, because there's so many people in this network or it's it's growing exponentially, um, do you see there being a point when we start to actually have like conventions specifically for like entertainers within the space or anything like that. I hope so. I mean, we, we have camp widow already. That <laughs> is something that happens where it's like you get together and you, you widow, you don't always widow, but you widow, um, you can widow, but um, I, I'm starting to see more of that stuff pop up and it's, it's nice. I mean, it's, not nice. It's, I am sad that it has to be there, I guess, but I, it's, it's a good resource to have, I guess, is what I should say, because it's going to, it's going to come for everybody at some point in your life. And it really just comes down to luck. Like you got shit luck and you got good luck. And if you got shit luck, it happens when you're young, like it's happened to us. You know, some people luck out and they're going to, you know, everybody's going to die around them peacefully all together when they're 98 and they're just going to ride off on the morphine drip into the sunrise on a unicorn. And that's fantastic. But like, you know, you're going to more likely than not need to cope. I would love to see that kind of 
stuff happen, like the grief conventions, people getting together and being able to like share and have something like that. I, I think that would be fantastic. I hope that happens. Like how they have crime con because like podcasting is really just for true crime. Yeah. I would love to see that <laughs> for, for what we do. I think that would be brilliant. When it came to like entering the death care space in particular, I know I received a wide range of responses from my network ranging from both concern, like immense concern and also excitement. Um, when you entered the space, what did the response look like? And going back to you debunking what widowhood looks like for people, have you found your own opportunities to educate others and speak to them about the realities of death and experience in a loss? I'm trying to get better about that because I'm a comedian yeah. for a reason and not a teacher. <laughs> I'm a snippy bitch. I will get really mad when people say some horrible things, not questioning things. Somebody who it's easy to educate somebody who wants to be educated is what I always say. People that are just coming at you with ignorant anger are much tougher to deal with. And I have very little patience. I'm not a teacher for a reason. I make snippy jokes and that that's been tough for me and something I'm trying to, to get better at is having more grace and kindness and poise and all that Miss America bullshit. But um, when I did actually get into that, that space, I noticed that most of the reaction is overwhelmingly positive. Like most of the people who are in that space understand, even if they're not that way, they're like, I get it and it's valid. What I have found is it's been people that are more in those communities that are restrictive that I have found get offended by it, that have not been the most welcoming is what I've seen. So I think it, it, com it comes back to like that fear and it comes back to that oppression that they are, are facing themselves. And when they see somebody doing that, they want them to fall back into line because they, they can't, I think in a lot of cases, express themselves how they want to. And it makes them angry when they see somebody who is doing that. What control to a certain degree, it sounds like. Very much so. That, that, that's a big thing in, in American culture, particularly like I, I'm in San Diego, California, and a lot of people have this idea that Southern California is very liberal, hippy dippy, progressive. Like it's not, there are pockets of that for sure. Very, very progressive pockets, but it's very conservative actually out here. We, we are, um, we have a history of like being a, you know, a ranching state. Like there's a lot of rural parts of San Diego, California. There's a lot of evangelicals out here and control is a big part of that. There, there is a lot of control that goes in with that culture. And when, when they see somebody who is in their mind out of control, not doing the things that they're supposed to be doing, they feel very led to put that person back in line. It's almost because, um, it's almost as if they're afraid to face the reality that you're bringing to it. You know, it's yeah. It's like a you know taking the the blue pill or whatever it was um, without the incel connotations that has nowadays. Um, <laughs> yeah. How do you personally handle that? Those dialogues uh, and those conversations with people. Is it just a big like go fuck yourself, or is it go fuck yourself? Like how do you? Yeah, the, my reaction a lot of times is like 
go fuck yourself. I start doing basically like heckling, which is terrible. Yeah. I, I, it's not productive and it's just my instinct and it's not a good one. And it's something I'm working on because you're not going to change anybody's mind that way. I being raised in, in a really truly like white supremacist evangelical home. That's not what got me to change was people being mean to me or people, you know, being like, God, you're so stupid and like making fun of me. That's not what, you know, brought, brought me around. What brought me around was the infinite kindness and patience and understanding that my friends had once I, you know, got out of that life and I was getting exposed to people that weren't the ones in my community. That's what brought me around, you know, that, that slow education that I was um, exposed to, you know, the, and, and them being very kind, really. And that's something I try to keep in mind is that I'm like, I'm not going to change this person's mind by being an asshole. If I'm an asshole to this person, they're just going to be like, she's an asshole. And so what she's doing and what she believes is clearly wrong. If I'm kind to this person, that's what's going to change them or possibly change them, not definitively, but they're going to remember that as like that I wasn't mean to them you know, is that I was, I was trying to be understanding of them. And I would hope that if I'm being understanding, that would inspire somebody to likewise be understanding. The hope killed them with kindness. I I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I honestly cannot imagine the, there's two sides to this hate because there's the stuff that you mentioned. And there's also the, the patriarchy element of it because a lot of shitty men are going to make those, you know, you're a black widow kind of jokes. And as a dude, obviously I'm, I don't face that. Um, and I hope that isn't something you get too often. I'm, I hope it's the, Oh, you're giving me the eyes. That's something you get often. Yeah. Jeez, really. Yeah. Yeah. People think that I, they, they, the black widow thing happens constantly. Because, and it comes down to the patriarchy thing, the misogyny thing. I was my husband's property. I belong to him. So I I don't belong to these other men. Somebody called my husband a cuck because he was, uh, we talked about what we would do if either of us died, like moving forward. And I'm like, I want you to be happy, dude. And I'm going to be dead. I'm not going to know what's going on. Like till death do us part. Those were the vows, you know? I want you to do whatever you got to do. You know, I want you to be happy wherever you find that happiness, however you find that happiness, that's not self-destructive, that's not harmful to you. And he said the same thing with me. We, we had, and just having that discussion, somebody was like, wow, so your husband's just okay with you fucking other guys. And I'm like, like, do you not understand how, how this works? Like, like all of this. And I think a lot of it is because of, Again, to go back to it, the the evangelical thing, like they Mm -hmm. think that he's up in heaven looking down at me. And they mention that a lot. Like, wow, I'm sure he's looking down just so proud of you. Like, well, I think he would be proud. When he was alive, the same people would say, oh, you're going to hell. And then once he passes away, they say to you, oh, he's looking down on you. It's like, oh, I thought he was was going to the other place, dude. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. They they can't, the, the consistency with all of these fantasies that are going on are, is lacking. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that he used the word cuck to describe someone who 
isn't on this planet anymore really tells you everything that you need to know about that person. The, extre- the, the religious extremism in this country is real. And we, we don't talk about it because we don't think of it as extremism that you might see portrayed in the media that's going on in other parts of the world. It's still extreme. It, it really is. Unless it's people of color doing it. Uh, yes, that, that's what I should have said. Yeah, unless it's people <laughs> yeah. of color doing it. That's what I should have said. Yeah. Then it's extreme. Yes. It's ex- yeah. Then it's extreme. Yeah, totally. You're right. I, I have one last question to ask that because I enjoy filling people with existential contemplation, I ask this question at the end of all interviews. How do you want to be remembered? Oh, I would like to be remembered as a kind person. I don't know how well I'm setting myself up for that. <laughs> um. I'd like to be remembered as somebody who did genuinely try their best and was genuine in in that regard. There wasn't any ulterior motive besides genuinely trying to do what the right thing was and actively pursuing that and figuring out what, what the right thing is. I feel like we've had a very genuine conversation, so I think you're hitting it. Yeah. I hope so. (laughs) You are genuine and kind, but not to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You're very self-deprecating and I'm here for it. It's awesome. (laughs) That's pretty on brand when it comes to comedians. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Like, no, I love you, but I'm a piece of shit. Trust me. (laughs) I'm sure I've literally said that to Maria a lot. You have no idea. You have no idea. I I always have to tell him like, yes, some days you are. But today was not one of those days. (laughs) Not in this moment. Nope. I think that's pretty universal with, with entertainers and, and with people that do the kind of the kind of stuff that we do is have having those those feelings. I, I see that a lot more. And that's why I am so grateful for for social media in that way. Like I know that there's so much evil that comes with social media and there's so many people that are so over like sharing. Why do you have to share everything? Why do you have to talk about everything? Why do you have to post all this stuff on social media? But I can't tell you how many times I've seen something posted where I'm like, oh, it's not just me. Oh my gosh, this is common. Oh my God. I thought this was like a big problem. And you feel like if this person's functioning, if this person can do it and they're saying stuff like, oh no, you for you. Yeah, definitely take you. Like you're good. You're great. But I, I suck. Like that, that means that I can get to that point of functionality too. Like everybody has those feelings. I think that, that that's the good part of social media. I mean, social media is really just like a tool. I compare it to a hammer. You know, you can build something or you can destroy something with a hammer. And I, I think that there, there is still so much good that has come from that connectivity that social media has brought us. And that's one of the things I'm really grateful for. It does depend essentially how you use it right? Like you can build an incredible community around the channels or you can create an entire dumpster fire. Like it depends on what you want to do with it. Yeah. I think it's the only tool in the world that can be used by other tools. (laughs) That's so well put. (laughs) It's a tool for tools. (laughs) And that my friends is Parla. Is that what that's called? Parla? Yeah. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Parlor. Yeah. You're right. What I mean, they're right. But... Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. They did invent the, the concept of ghost cucks. Didn't they? Though? That man was on TikTok. I'm like, what are you doing here? Go back to 4chan where you belong. 
Jesus, <laughs> Casper the Friendly Cock. I don't know what he's watching to get. Like, what? what is he? I, I couldn't what? imagine that he would be wanting to watch. <laughs> like, what's his search history like? Yeah. <laughs> Casper the Friendly <laughs> Cock. <laughs> I have to use that. Tony, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for speaking with us today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are so much fun. So we're just going to end every interview with that question, huh? Yep. It's a good question. And I love hearing people's answers to it. It always catches people off guard too. Because we're like, final question. And the guest is like, oh, and then boom, heavy ass question. Well, the heaviness of that question depends on who you're asking. I think it's quite an optimistic, beautiful thing to ask. You're right. That's also a testament to why we're doing this, you know? Why should it be so heavy and taboo? Like what you said earlier, we've still got a lot of work to do in this space and we are just getting started. Yeah, and while we're on the topic of the space, one frustration that Tani shares with us is one of the things we've debunked before, the BS mindset of there's a right or wrong way to cope with grief. All of the misconceptions. Death just needs a better communication strategy. Death, you hiring, bro? Because uh, your boy just went freelance. Oh my God, yes. Death needs a content strategy stat. Humor, sinus, distractions, all of these are natural ways for people to grieve, even anger itself. A lot of people are afraid to admit that the death of a loved one made them feel angry. It's like that anti-drug advert. This is your brain. This is your brain on trauma. It doesn't have to make sense. You'll see that in this season, we actually touch on how grief physically changes your brain as well. Yep. All grief and no therapy make Jack an angry boy. There's a book called How to Go on Living When Someone You Love Dies by Teresa A. Rando, who we also reference later in the season, where she talks about why we shouldn't look down at grieving people who get angry at loved ones. She asks, imagine someone broke into your house, stole everything. Would you feel angry? Yeah, give me my stuff back. Right. So why is it wrong or look down on to feel anger when someone you loved was stolen from your life through the act of their death? They're not really angry at that person, or in some cases they might be, but they're more so angry that something was taken away from them, someone they loved and held close. Yeah. And again, all of this is the bad PR about death, which is exactly why it needs a new slogan, right? A fresh image. I mean, look at Tony's fresh approach. With humor, she's not actually making fun of her husband. She's making fun of our collective mortality. Humor is just the tool she's using to reframe her life. That's genuine positivity, right? It's not forced, it's not all the time, and it's not toxic. Oh boy, the listeners are going to learn how you feel about toxic positivity this season. I cannot wait. What else resonated with you? I appreciated her saying that her relationship with grief and humor actually changes throughout her grief journey. Um, That's pretty refreshing for me to hear. Uh, In any walk of life to hear somebody say, actually, I might change my mind on this and... And that's okay. Yeah, everyone is a work in progress. We're all pieces of art. What makes you feel comfortable and supported can change day to day. And you shouldn't feel guilty about it, even if you do a complete 180. Exactly. And somewhere down the line, I hope that when we're able to travel again and attend events, that is, we can actually make like a death meeting, death casting convention happen and have a giant collective rant with Tony and everyone in the space. We could call it the, the sick to death rant. I'm just picturing the absolute chaos of letting us, not even me, just us into a room and enabling us to rant about the state of our world and all the ways we can make it better. I am here for it. You know what else? We'll be here for it soon. 
Season two of Filatimo Live in just two short weeks, baby. That's right. Canada's premier death cast coming at you bi-weekly. Filatimo Live, baby. Once again, a massive thanks to you, Tony, of the Death is Hilarious podcast. You can find it online at That Death Pod on Instagram and Tony Platis on TikTok. That's T-A-W-N-Y-P-L-A-T-I-S. And while you're there, make sure to follow us at Philotuma Life on all social platforms. We'd really appreciate it if you rated this and shared it with your friends and family. That's P-H-I-L-O-T-I-M-O-L-I-F-E. 